I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, it's a commuter's worst nightmare. But there is a solution to the traffic that plagues our roads. When you hold the price of something down below what sort of the market rate is, one of the results you get is a shortage. And congestion is basically just a shortage of road. Next, reinventing American blue-collar jobs. But it means the powerful may have to make some short-term sacrifices. The mindset needs to shift from, you know, how big is our piece of the pie to making the pie bigger for everyone. Then, have you ever stopped to think there might be science behind the seven deadly sins? These seven deadly sins in excess lead us into social isolation, which literally is deadly. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Over the last few months, a large chunk of my conversations have veered towards a single topic. After a while, I got a little obsessed with the topic and I started asking people about it directly. That generally elicited sighs and groans and comments that sounded a little like this. I feel furious. That's about it. That's all I can describe it as, is just pure fury. I feel very um, claustrophobic. I feel angry. You feel a little bit impatient. Uh, it's really stressful. I am initially angry, and then I settle in and say, turn up the tunes, get Spotify going, and just relax. It's either that or take a Xanax, and I don't have a prescription yet, so. Those were commuters we tracked down in Atlanta and Chicago. And they're talking, of course, about traffic, something that affects the health, mental state, wallets, family life, and work options of so many Americans. Which kind of makes you wonder, could traffic be fixed? Or is it just destined to trap us in our cars for more and more time each year? There's general agreement that congestion in our major urban areas is getting worse. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. His focus is traffic. And he says if you live in or near a major urban area, you probably spend a chunk of your day in gridlock. Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., that metropolitan area, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, Atlanta. In general, the bigger and denser a city you are, the more traffic congestion your roads have. Rush hours have expanded as we try to avoid driving at the worst times of day. Stress has grown as people grapple with the unpredictability of traffic. So one day it could take 30 minutes to get to work and the next day it takes 50. And the costs don't end there. One of the most underappreciated impacts of traffic congestion is the pollution that results from it. When vehicles are idling and moving slowly or just going stop and go at around 10 to 15 miles an hour, they emit much more pollution. Uh, they emit more carbon, and which sort of matters for climate change and sort of these global concerns. But at a local level, they're likely to emit much more sort of what we call local emissions or, or local pollutants like fine particulate matter or benzene and things like that. And these have been strongly associated with increases in asthma, increase in other respiratory diseases, uh, increases in cancer, and most especially increases in uh, premature birth and low birth weight. 
Those costs, Manville says, are mostly borne by people whose homes are between 500 and 1,000 feet from the congested road, which means that not all of the costs associated with traffic are paid by people who drive a lot. It's the drivers who suffer from lost time. It's the drivers who suffer from stress. It's the drivers who suffer from most crashes. But you also have people who just live near freeways, and those folks tend to be uh, much lower income than the population at large, and they breathe very polluted air. Naturally, Manville has spent some serious energy thinking about how you make traffic better, noticeably better. Now, politicians also say they want to make traffic better, but Manville argues they've tended to embrace solutions that the evidence doesn't quite bear out. Certainly the most long-standing approach to fighting traffic congestion has been to build more roads. Right, and that could be building entire roads, which we don't do very much anymore, or it could be widening existing roads, which was very, very popular in sort of the last decades of the 20th century, and we still do some of, much more in some parts of the country than others. But like, you know, out in L.A., we now, the 405 freeway is now something like 16 lanes, and that is the, the result of progressively adding lanes to deal with its chronic congestion. If you add a lane, and then as a result the traffic starts moving faster because it does. You know, if you if you add some capacity, then in the short term, the traffic is going to start moving a little bit more quickly than it did. But what that does is it makes driving more attractive on that road. And so within a matter of a few weeks or a few months, the improved traffic has convinced more people that, hey, the roads aren't so bad. And once that happens, they're terrible all over again. But there are other solutions politicians have touted, like improving public transportation. Manville says public transportation is a great thing, and investing in it often makes sense. But will that investment help traffic? So I think the easiest way to answer that is to just think of the places in the world that have the most comprehensive, sophisticated public transportation systems. Everybody probably has their own list, but what comes to mind for me are Tokyo, London, New York... Hong Kong, some of the other big European cities, Paris, they all have terrible traffic congestion. So, okay, if that's not going to work, how about creating more dense, affordable housing in the city or just right outside it so that everybody doesn't have to trek in from a low-density suburb? Manville says that's not going to work either. Again, think about big, dense places like New York City. Has that density solved their traffic? Not so much. Also, just as a side note, trying to convince people not to live in suburbs is kind of a heavy lift. There's a saying, I I forget exactly where it came from, that says that, you know, trying to change transportation by changing the organization of sort of American society is like uh, moving a picture by moving the wall. So how could we deal with traffic? Michael Manville from UCLA says, if you really want to figure out how to curb demand for something... You've got to understand how it works. Something to understand about traffic congestion is that as a phenomenon, it's nonlinear, which is to say that the majority of the delay or a substantial proportion of the delay is caused by sort of the last few vehicles entering the road. Hmm. And so you can just imagine that if you're driving on a road at midnight and nobody's on it, uh, and then one other person gets on the road with you, neither of you are slowed down. Mm-hmm. Right? So the road can absorb a lot of people up to a certain point without really slowing anyone down. Once you get past that tipping point, however, each additional vehicle results in a lot more delay. Hmm. 
And so you can have situations where a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, the population is growing but not that much, but you only need to add in places where the roadway system was already under so much strain. You only need to add a few more vehicles at peak hours to really see fairly sizable increases in delay. When you think about, and I'm sure people ask you all the time, could traffic get better? Could it? Could, is there anything we can do about the awful traffic? Absolutely. Okay. What can we do? Uh, the one thing that will work, the only thing that has ever worked, is to price our roads. Okay. Does that mean like having turnpikes all over the place, toll roads? Yeah. So uh, it's a very specific type of toll that's called a congestion charge. And it is a dynamic toll, which is to say that the level of the toll rises and falls based on the demand for the road at a given time. And so it might look a lot like a toll gantry that you see on many toll roads in the United States, you know, with an easy pass or a right, something right, like right. that that you drive mm -hmm. under. But it is not designed to raise money, which is what most toll roads in the United States right now are designed to do. They just raise some revenue either to pay for the cost of building the road or to defray overall government costs. This is a toll that at 8 in the morning, when lots of people want to be on the road, it's higher. At midnight, it's lower, and it might in fact be zero. That the sole purpose of the price is to allocate the road space so that it works. It's sometimes called performance pricing, because rather than the government saying, well, we want to raise this much money from this road, what they say instead is, we want this road to flow at 55 miles an hour. That's the performance standard. And the price can rise or fall. The price can float to meet that standard. It almost sounds like, you know, there's a fair amount of demand for gold. Like a lot of people would like to have gold. And so it's pretty expensive to buy it if you want it. And I feel like you're saying, like, it's very desirable to be on the road at 8 in the morning. So we're going to charge you a lot for that because there is a lot of demand for this thing. Absolutely. And you don't even have to think about it as gold. You can think about it for what it actually is. A freeway going into a major metropolitan area, right? A, a freeway going into New York City, going into central Atlanta, going into downtown Houston, the 405 into LA. That's just, it's land. It's real estate. And you, if you look at the price of the surrounding land in all those places, you know, it's it's often some of the most valuable land in the world. Right, right. That if you wanted to occupy a piece of land in New York City or Los Angeles, you would pay a lot of money. But if you had a car and you wanted to get onto some publicly owned land at 8 in the morning, it would cost you nothing. You know, anyone who has ever suffered through an economics class knows that when you control the price of something, when you hold the price of something down below what sort of the market rate is, one of the results you get is a shortage. And congestion is basically just a shortage of road. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Michael Manville, a professor at UCLA and an expert on traffic. Okay, so I think the first question that most people would have listening to that is like, well, that's an, a, an interesting idea and it might reduce traffic, but here's the thing. I live 45 minutes out the side of the city. I have to get into the city and I cannot be paying like $10 every day to go in. So one of the objections absolutely that people have when they hear about congestion pricing is they look at a crowded freeway in their city and they just say, my goodness, you know, there's thousands of people on this road. We would have to get rid of hundreds, if not thousands of them to make it go faster. The, the toll would have to be astronomically high. 
Uh, and I think it's true that in some areas at some times, tolls could be quite high. But I think it's also important to remember that a congested road, most of the delay on it comes from the last few vehicles, right? It's that, again, this idea that congestion is a nonlinear phenomenon. This is sort of a, a rule of thumb, but you would really only have to have a toll high enough to get sort of like 4 or 5% of the drivers off. And that could lead to something as large as sort of a 15 to 20% increase in speed. So you would get yeah. a, a very noticeable increase in traffic speeds just from removing those last few drivers. Now, again, in some places, getting rid of that proportion of drivers might require a high toll. But I think in many places, the toll would not be super high. What do you do about the fact that for somebody who's making like 300K a year, great, they, they can pay the toll and they can get to work faster and it, it all is wonderful. And for somebody making $30,000 a year, they can't really afford the toll, but they've got to get to work and nothing is working about that situation. I think, I mean, that's a very real concern, but I, I would say it's a concern even when the roads are free. Right. I mean, driving by itself is expensive. You know, if you're rich, it's easier for you to buy a nicer, more comfortable car. It's easier for you to pay for insurance. You can buy gas more easily. The inequality that is implied by sort of we're going to charge for access to roads is not the only inequality that exists in urban travel. Right. It's good to be rich. Right. I mean, things are easier when you have more money and things are harder when you have less. But the nice thing about a congestion charge is that if it does impose a sort of equity burden, a burden on lower income people, it also comes with a built in solution to that problem, which is that it raises a lot of money. And so if the rich people want to just pay and they don't sweat it and they go on their merry way driving and you have some set of folks who are uh, well off enough to be able to drive, but not so well off that the toll isn't a big problem for them, well, we can use some of that revenue to help them out. And this is not unprecedented. Right now, if you look at the rest of our urban infrastructure, we regularly price water and gas and heating oil and electricity mm -hmm. and so forth. Not for nothing, there's a reason why we don't have chronic shortages of those goods. Right? We don't have blackouts every day. We don't have the toilets back up every day. We don't have massive shortages of heating fuel every day. A big part of the reason for that is that we allocate those things by price. Right. We don't say you can have as much electricity as you want, go for it, and just see how it works out. Exactly. And, we, and so we understand that to efficiently allocate those vital pieces of infrastructure, um, we need to price them. We also understand that putting those prices in place can be a big burden for some folks who don't have a lot of money. And that's why virtually every state, every utility has some sort of lifeline program where they take money paid by folks who can afford it and use it to help subsidize access to the goods for people who uh, have less money. There is absolutely no reason that we couldn't do the same thing with congestion prices. How do you know it works and where has it been tried and like where could I go to see this? Okay, so I think there's two ways to think about this. One is that if you just think conceptually about what traffic congestion is, then you, you understand that pricing is the only thing that solves that problem. So again, if you understand that congestion results because a very valuable asset is underpriced, and so as a result, too many people want to use it at a particular time, 
then just logically, the only thing that is going to re- ameliorate that is making it more expensive at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's like sort of just the, the logical or conceptual uh, basis behind it. If you want to see it in action, Singapore has used some version of congestion pricing since 1975, I believe. Wow. And it has used sort of more sophisticated electronic road pricing since the late 1990s or early 2000s. Uh, Singapore is a very dense city. It's denser than San Francisco. Its freeways move pretty consistently at 55 or 60 miles an hour. Whoa. You can also see examples of this along certain what we call high-occupancy toll lanes throughout the United States. The SR-91 roadway in in Orange County, for instance, is a great example. It's a congestion-priced roadway that sits in the middle of a free freeway in Orange County. And during rush hour, you will see traffic snarled in the free lanes and zipping right along at 55, 60 miles an hour in the priced lanes. A variant of congestion pricing is it at work in places like London and Stockholm, where driving into the center of the city, and this is not freeways, but this is driving into the downtown, you incur a charge to do so. Uh, And that has been very successful as well. The first day of London's congestion charging, traffic delay went down by about 35%. So this is an issue that crosses party lines. It's not partisan. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican if you're, you know, stuck in traffic every morning. Um, but I have not heard a lot of politicians talk about it. Do you see, I mean, it's kind of a local thing, but do you see mayors or governors um, talking about this, doing congestion pricing, really trying to uh, make people's commute uh, better? So congestion is absolutely a much bigger priority at the local and sometimes the state level than it is at the national level. Right. It's not something that the national government has a lot of concern or authority over. And it's also just not something that even if you look at polls, you know, if you ask an American in a Gallup poll or something like, is congestion bad? They say yes. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them, like, name the top three problems in your region, only in a handful of regions does congestion rank really high. Mm -hmm. So I think it it becomes much more an issue that mayors and city council members uh, and in smaller states like Massachusetts governors tackle. And the question of, you know, do I see these elected officials embracing congestion pricing? What I would say optimistically is that more people are willing to talk about it now than they were 10 years ago. I think it's a hard political sell. I mean, this is people are very accustomed to the roads being free. They're also very accustomed, unfortunately, policymakers having told them that other things would solve congestion. Being told that because we're building transit or adding road capacity, the problem was going to get better. So I think it's been difficult to sort of go back on that and say, actually, we were wrong. The only thing that's going to solve this is pricing. But I'm optimistic that as more and more places, many of them outside the United States, uh, experiment with this, mayors in the United States will look around and say, you know, there's no reason we shouldn't be part of this success. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. His research focuses on traffic. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. One more song about moving along the highway. Can't say much of anything that's new. You heard from some commuters in Atlanta and Chicago at the beginning of this segment. Well, we asked those folks. What would the world look like without traffic? (laughs) 
I cannot imagine a world without traffic. So are we talking about the Tesla uh, super underground tunnel train? Because bring it on. <laughs> Although it seems kind of Jetson-ish to me. I cannot imagine a world without traffic. Mm, that's a good question. I, I feel like probably more people from the city would probably live out there if they didn't have to deal with those type of commutes. Wow, Chicago would be absolutely amazing. I, I love the city, but it's so car-centric. Um, it's really frustrating. I feel like that would be what world peace would feel like. <laughs> Traveling drought gets me down and We've got lots more about Manville's idea of congestion pricing, how it works, places where it's been tried. That's at innovationhub.org. Up next, maybe there's an obvious way to remake blue-collar jobs, and everyone would get a bigger piece of the pie. The idea generally is that everybody is collectively shaping the performance of the organization, that we should all share in that, and that that can actually create uh, you know, positive uh, things for, for organizations. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub, back in just a minute. It would be so Is it possible to reinvent blue-collar jobs in America to make them more lucrative, more engaging? You're about to hear from one scholar who's been working on a plan to do just that. Because even in an economy that's been on the upswing for several years, it sometimes feels like in the tug-of-war between corporations and workers, corporations are winning. Many workers are seeing their wages just keep pace with inflation, or not even. Politicians talk sometimes about bringing back good factory jobs, and there are some. But lots of factories now rely heavily on robots, and lots of factories have moved overseas. Economist Dennis Campbell says blue-collar workers need a new blueprint for the future, and he's co-authored a plan to make that happen. Campbell cites a company in Milwaukee called Gardner Denver. It makes industrial equipment. And it tried an interesting experiment, giving blue-collar workers something that's usually just given to those in the corporate suites. And they have, you know, for the first time uh, for many of these workers right on the production floor, uh, have actually given them stock ownership uh, in, in the firm. And so really what that does is it signals that we're all in this together. Campbell worked at the Federal Reserve, and he's now a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. He notes that we're in a transitional moment, and many companies have kind of dropped the ball. But why, if you're an executive, should you give stock to people on the factory floor or to workers in a chain restaurant or to flight attendants? Well, go back to Gardner Denver for a minute. There are certain aspects of business that the company wants to get better at, more efficient at. And it helps to have every brain focused on strengthening those areas, not just the brains in the corporate suites. Those workers that are sitting, you know, on the production floor, that are sitting in purchasing, that are sitting there in accounts receivable, they can find ways to kind of manage that. And if they all do that collectively, that will add up to value for the firm as a whole. And then they all share in that. They're all in that together. And I think that sends a really powerful signal and they're having some great results there. Indeed, it's not just Gardner Denver, which is owned by a company called KKR that's sharing profits. It's Procter & Gamble, Southwest Airlines, Chobani, the yogurt maker, and other companies. And it's not just about sharing profits, says Dennis Campbell. It's about sharing with workers how the company works and sharing responsibility for new ideas and for innovation. Research has shown 
over and over again that all this sharing pays off for companies. On average, they just make more money, which is something Campbell pointed out in the Harvard Business Review earlier this year. But he says when he sits in a room chatting with CEOs and they go through the benefits of doing this kind of sharing, he also hears the hesitations. You know, can I trust the employees to do the right thing? It's that if I give them power, I lose it. Um, You know, so you do see that. So this is where I'm saying it takes courage to do this. And I do think that because what we're outlining really is about systemic changes at the organizational level, you really need the top leader. You really need the CEO, you know, doing these sorts of things. I mean, again, I'll go back to the Gardner Denver example, right? You have KKR, the owner, really kind of driving that process, selecting the right CEO, the CEO, uh, then, um, you know, really driving this whole thing throughout the organization. I think you really need that kind of level of leadership to make this work. Why would a CEO or a CFO or, you know, anybody sort of at the top that was thinking about um, sharing profit at the end of the year, thinking about giving out stock options, why would they want to give it to people on the factory floor, to people cutting hair at supercuts? Like, why would you want to do that if you're not doing it now and you can keep that many more, you know, shares of stock for yourself? Because, you know, if you, I think the the mindset needs to shift from, um, you know, how big is our piece of the pie to making the pie bigger for everyone. And I think that's the idea here is that if you, share in the rewards that actually, and people can see the connection between their work and overall rewards that productivity actually goes up, that performance goes up, the pie gets bigger for everybody. And so I think that that's really the value proposition in all of this. So sort of beyond the monetary aspects of like having stock in the company, and maybe even beyond the idea of like understanding how the company works, are we talking also here about in some measure giving people more control over their jobs and over their lives. Uh, Absolutely. I think that's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's a big deal. In fact, I don't want, I definitely wouldn't want listeners to walk away thinking this is really just about money, actually. And in fact, um, I'll give you an example of a large Swedish bank that I've done some work with um, called Handelsbanken. This is a bank that actually uh, operates with no bonuses at all. So no nobody in the company gets bonuses, including the CEO. Which um, is weird for a bank, right? Very weird for a okay. bank. And by the way, they expanded it very successfully into the UK, which, um, you know, some people might think, oh, it's Sweden. You know, you could do that there. But they've expanded into the UK, which has a very strong banking bonus type culture, and they've done extremely well there. What's interesting about them is that, um, you know, they have no short-term bonuses at all. And they um, have almost complete empowerment of branch managers. They can make loans to anybody they want based on on, on any terms they want, based on their judgment about the people in the local community. And, you know, you look at all that and you think this is a recipe for disaster in banking, right? No incentives and uh, lots of empowerment, lots of risk. They're the, um, you know, they've consistently had higher profitability than their peers every single year for decades, at least 50 years at this point, literally every single year. They have the lowest default rates among their peers. They've expanded into countries where there's strong bonus cultures and they do just as well there. And what's interesting about them is they have many of the elements that we outline in the article. And so no short-term bonuses, but they have very long-term profit sharing. Profit sharing meaning that if the company as a whole meets its goal of having return on equity greater than peers, profitability better than peers, everybody shares Everybody shares in gets a share in the profit of the company. But you have to hold that share until you're 63. So very, very long term. Okay. And then that piece of ownership like incentives, right? The long term ownership, 
again, is really just a signal that we're all in this together, that if you do all this, uh, we'll all share in the rewards at the end of the day. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dennis Campbell. He's a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. We're talking about how sharing profits with employees can make companies more productive. How much does it cost companies to share some of their profits? Because I feel like that's where the uh, resistance kicks in. So, I mean, you know, one way to look at it, I, I know this is a little controversial, but one way to look at it is it's free in a sense, which is that, look, if, if employees are actually improving pros, profits, they're actually, this is leading them to actually, um, you know, find innovations, be more creative in their work, expend more effort, become more productive, that profit goes up, they, you know, share and they share and that you're still getting, you're still getting, um, you know, a share of something more than you would have had before. And so I think, um, you know, one way to look at that, it's free if you, if you put all of the innovations that we're talking about in the article into place, if we believe productivity, profitability will increase, we you know, think the research supports that, that ultimately that's coming from the employees. And so if you're sharing some small portion of that with them and that's actually leading to those gains, I think um, you know, one, way to, one way to look at it is that it doesn't cost much at all. We've talked to some degree about giving stock, which is, like I said, done with white-collar employees all the time. Kind of depends a little bit on the industry, but it's done widely. Um, and if you extend that to blue-collar employees, I just wonder, you know, if somebody gets a lot of stock from one company, but let's say they don't have a lot of other stock, and then the company doesn't do well, um, do you worry about that? Do you think like maybe a, an old-fashioned pension is the way to go or just a higher salary is the way to go instead of – I mean, the other thing is at the moment that the stock doesn't do well, that is also the moment when they're most likely to lose their job potentially. And so they have all this money bound up with this one company. So I think there's a bunch of things to unpack there. One of them is that you know I, we might not be talking here about – having the vast majority of their pay tied up in this. In fact, I think when you kind of create these kinds of incentives, it doesn't need to be the majority of the pay. In fact, it shouldn't be. That that at the end of the day, you don't want to impose too much risk on these on these employees at this level. So I think that that's one thing to think about and that, that normally we would not see if you're going to go that far and it's going to be stock ownership, that there's still going to be a fixed salary. There's still going to be all those okay. things. So that, it sounds yes. like you're thinking maybe 10, 20 percent of pay, like a, a yeah, smaller so, amount. Some, something, on, something on that order. Or it could be a little more, but something on that sort of order. So I think that's one is you don't want to impose too much risk. The other is I think that you know this is where it's important to do the other part of – what we're proposing, which is do the hard work in creating the transparency in the organization and the learning environment so that employees actually see the connection between what they do and the results. Because if you don't, then this can be completely demotivating. And this is exactly where it's a problem if you just focus on the incentive piece of this, right? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, if if the case you propose happens and, and stock price goes down, employees think, like, why am I getting punished for something that I didn't create? You right, know, and, and I right. think that getting them to really see the connection between their results, their their performance and what's happening in the broader picture, I think that's really important if you want to make this work. Are there people like CEOs, political leaders? Uh, we certainly have seen a lot of in the last few years, you know, action in the streets, uh, strikes by, you know, I think about teachers. Um, are there people you think who could get on a soapbox and say, we need a different uh, mold for blue collar work? We need a different contract with workers than what we've seen developing over the past generation. 
You know, my perspective on this is that it's not likely to happen through the political process. In fact, this is kind of where, um, you know, one of the motivations for writing this article and really starting to look into the space more, I think that real change is going to come when business leaders see the benefits of these approaches, start to adopt them widely, when investors start to see the value like what KKR is doing, when you start to see the value in this and capital starts to go to these sorts of uh, companies that just in the way that you see a lot of um, you know companies undertaking environmental and social sort of initiatives and there's been a lot of reporting and transparency around that, people, there's a demand side to that, that consumers want to see that, that the broader society wants to see that and companies do respond. And I think if, um, you know, leaders start to see the economic value that could be created here, investors start to see that as well. I, I think that that's going to drive change more than, um, you know, any kind of political process. That's my mm. perspective, at least. Dennis Campbell is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Campbell's original article on how to rethink blue-collar jobs in America, including companies that are doing just that, that's at our website. Also on our website, if you look over on the right-hand side, you will find a link to our new mugs, shirts, phone cases. You can check out all the different styles at innovationhub.org. It's pop quiz time. Here's the question. Can you name the seven deadly sins? And while you're thinking, here's another question. Where did that list come from? The Bible, of course, has the Ten Commandments, which has some overlaps with the seven deadly sins. But we're talking about seven here, not ten. So who dreamed up this list? Well, credit goes to an inventive Italian fellow, a pope, actually, who became a saint, Gregory the Great. He realized 10 is kind of a big number of things for people to keep straight, and this was later confirmed by scientific evidence. Hence a list that has shaped culture for centuries, as Morgan Freeman discovers in the movie Seven, where he's a detective tracking a series of murders based on these sins. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. So just to recap, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Jack Lewis is a neuroscientist and the author of the new book, The Science of Sin, Why We Do the Things We Know We Shouldn't. He's not religious, but he kind of thinks, in the case of the seven deadly sins, religion got it right. Whereas religions would talk about an excess of those seven urges leading to uh, hell rather than heaven, I, as a neuroscientist, think of it more in terms of uh, whether it makes a hell or heaven of life on earth. Hmm. Because all of them in excess are essentially antisocial behaviors and will lead a person to be shunned by others in their lives. And it's well known from science. Various publications have come out in, in the last few years showing that social isolation is very strongly linked 
to poorer health and early death through cardiovascular disease and cancers and also uh, various psychiatric illnesses such as psychosis and uh, depression. And so therefore, these seven deadly sins, as they were called back in the day, and I think of them as sort of urges, um, in excess lead us into social isolation, which literally is deadly. I think that's so interesting to like hone in on that the the potential problem with these seven behaviors beyond potentially if you you know believe in hell the fact that you might go to hell um, but beyond that um, it's the shunning uh, you know other people shunning you that doing these things will lead people to say I don't want to hang out with you or there's something wrong with you I don't like what you've done yeah. Exactly. And if you go through them one by one, like sloth, we humans throughout history and also in the present day um, have been reliant on one another. And so if someone's lazy and not pulling their weight, not doing their fair share of the work, then why should they benefit from an equal division of the bounty that results from that work? If someone thinks they're the centre of the universe, they're very prideful and narcissistic, if they treat everyone else as if they are second-class citizens compared to themselves, why in the world would you reciprocate and, and try and share evenly with them? So, you know, we humans are an intensely social species. We're super reliant on one another's cooperation. And if we go too far in these antisocial behaviours, then other people will withhold their cooperation and, and basically be like, stuff you. If, if that's how you feel <laughs> about things, then off you go. See how you get on on your own. Mm -hmm. um, I talked before about these two lists, right? The seven deadly sins and the Ten Commandments. Why did you write about the seven deadly sins and not about the Ten Commandments? Um, well, it was because of the number seven. So as you, as you alluded to in the introduction, mm -hmm. uh, there is a nice little piece of science. George A. Miller from Princeton University published it in 1956. And it was about the magic number seven, plus or minus two. That was the title of the paper. And amongst us scientists, that's vaguely humorous. But the, basically the <laughs> idea is that the capacity, the limit of working memory, uh, back then at least, was seven items plus or minus two. So the average person could remember between five and nine items of information. So on average, seven items we can hold in mind simultaneously for long enough to perform some kind of mental operation with them. And so in this case, it's looking at your conduct and, and a behavior that you're perhaps thinking of, of acting upon or an urge you're thinking of acting upon. You think, is this right or wrong? You can quickly run through those uh, list of the seven cardinal vices or deadly sins. And then, you know, that's a nice sort of rule of thumb to guide you on to the straight and narrow as opposed to in the abyss, so to speak. The other reason was that as a neuroscientist who was raised an atheist, um, I still nonetheless sang a lot of hymns at school. Uh, because I went to a Church of England primary school and secondary school, or high school, as you'd call it in the States. Um, and so every morning we sang an assembly, and I realised that, you know, when I, by the time I got to adulthood, I'd essentially sort of soaked up the Christian moral framework, and I was living my life according to it, despite not actually believing in God or heaven or hell. And and I feel that my life was, was better off from that. That led to the idea that religions have been studying human behaviour for millennia, 
science has only got onto the scene in the last few decades. Because mm -hmm. imagining a world without any moral guidance or, or at least prolific moral guidance that everyone has access to um, would lead to a worse case scenario than and you know an incredibly um, strict totalitarian theocracy like it's almost like no moral framework and i feel like um things would would fall into disrepair in terms of communities and so forth you're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jack Lewis. He's a neuroscientist and author of the book, The Science of Sin, Why We Do the Things We Know We Shouldn't. So let's talk about one of those sins here, uh, pride, which we've touched on. Um, a couple of years ago, I talked to a professor at the University of British Columbia named Jessica Tracy, and she wrote a whole book about pride. And she talked about how sort of paradoxically it can be a really good thing for you. So, you know, it can motivate people to be good parents, to be good students, whatever. Um, but she also said it's got this dark side, uh, which she calls hubristic pride. So uh, here she is talking about that. So our research shows that people who tend to feel this kind of hubristic pride have problematic friendships, right? They, they have trouble making friends and keeping friends because really what they value more is boosting themselves up at the expense of their friends. So they'll put others down to feel good about themselves. They'll behave aggressively to try to get power and control. And so the result of that is behaviors that can be really destructive, like cheating and lying. Jack Lewis, um, pride is one of those really interesting things that's not sort of an it's not an unalloyed, like, bad thing. It it, it has these two sides. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, how often do, do, do we hear kids being told, you should take pride in your work. Exactly. You know, you shouldn't exactly. do such a slapdash job. You should take pride. But there's a difference between feeling pride and showing pride. Because if people express their pride in public, then they're accused of arrogance. They're accused of being conceited and full of themselves and thinking they're the center of the universe. So, yes, it's definitely a double-edged sword. And for me, having read a little bit of the sort of historical antecedents, uh, from the religious text of what it, what is it about pride that's so bad as to make it not just a sin, but a queen of all the sins, according to right. Pope Gregory the Great. Exactly. Um, it was his and, least and, favorite. Of all the things he didn't like, that was the worst. Exactly. Unlike St. Paul, who felt that it was greed that was the root of all evil. And so um, on this pride front, the, the most obvious thing that for me to reach towards in terms of academic literature that could reveal something interesting about what what religions call pride, in scientific terminology, I think it's closest to narcissism. Hmm. There's a sort of uh, everyday interpretation of what narcissism means, and there's the actual kind of psychological phenomenon of narcissism, which has several different facets. So, for example, narcissists tend to be extremely vain. They tend to be exhibitionistic. They, they are constantly trying to uh, draw attention to themselves and uh, essentially elicit flattery of some description. They feel they're an authority on all things, uh, even against very stark evidence of the contrary um, sometimes. They feel they are entirely self-reliant. They don't need other people. Um, and essentially they act like they are the center of the universe. They are the most important thing, which, of course, remember, all children start out that way. Right, right, if you look right. at the neuroscience of what goes on in people's brains uh, who score high on the MPI test, the high in narcissism compared to those low in the general population, it, it's quite revealing. Interesting. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk about two sins that um, in some ways to me are kind of related, um, lust and greed. Like one is sort of 
sexual, one is financial maybe, but they both have this kind of desire, right, involved for more. Do you think that making lust and greed sins, like putting them on this list, did anything? Did it help curb them at all? (laughs) Doesn't feel like Um, it, but just checking. (laughs) There's another similarity in that greed is the desire to have more no matter how much you already have. Right, right. And the main problem with lust is infidelity. And so that that's kind of like, you know, you, you can have a good thing going on with your existing relationship and you just want more and more mm-hmm, and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I always try to focus the lust question from a science perspective on the fact that lust is, is one of three drives, each of which serve a slightly different purpose in a slightly different way. And they're driven by very much overlap lapping brain circuitry, but also there are certain kind of brain chemicals involved, you know, more important for one or other. And those three are lust, romantic love, and long-term bonding. And it's like a relay race. Um, so whilst lust is, is, is quite indiscriminate, when lust is carried out in the direction of someone um, that, you're in, uh, that, you, that you're in love with, you're in, romantically in love with them, and you're obsessed about them, you're thinking about them all the time, you can't sleep and you don't feel right unless you're with them, you know, um, that lust, you, fall, you tend to fall in love with someone who's considered to be better than all of the other options available, you know? So whereas lust, as anyone knows, who's, um, you know, been in a bar late at night when uh, people are perhaps a little drunk and and a little lusty, that, that, you know, people will tend to, uh, you know, not be so discerning in their choice of who they <laughs> act on that on that urge with. Um, but, but you know, in, in the sort of the original use, utility of these three functions is that um, if you're carrying out your lust with the person that you love, when it wears off after, you know, no matter what the songs and the novels and the movies say, a love that lasts forever, the really intoxicating phase of romantic love lasts for six to 18 months. And then that can hand on to long-term bonding. And, and love serves the purpose of sort of synchronizing your lives with that person you love so that then when it mellows down into um, a sort of more mellow commitment phase, you can then... Uh, share the burden, and it is a burden, I think most parents would agree, of, of raising children together and, and, mm. and taking turns um, and cooperating in that regard. Now, the one thing I think really confuses people is that that sex drive remains indiscriminate. And so you will still, you will often, we will all find ourselves find, being sexually aroused by people that aren't our chosen partner. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is the most natural thing in the world. Acting upon that lust on that sex urge is another matter because if you act on it with Mm. someone who's not your chosen partner then you've betrayed the trust in that relationship and then you can't be surprised when that person decides well maybe I'm not going to stick around and look after this person when they're old and gray you know and and it's such a shame Mm. when people do that because there's this whole thing of oh but are we really monogamous or are we we polygamous well if you look at our closest non-human primate cousins the bonobos and the chimps we share around about 99% of our DNA with both chimps are quite monogamous, uh, bonobos are quite polygamous, and we're equally related to both of them. So that argument over are humans polygamous or monogamous, it's kind of up to you. If you want the benefits of someone sticking with you uh, in the long run, then go for monogamy. If you don't care about dying alone, well, sure, polygamy (laughs) is an option. Um, Finally, how do you think about sin differently now than you used to before you wrote this book? Well, I have to say that in the past, especially when singing hymns in church, I thought that 
I, I kind of did throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I thought religion was outdated and broadly speaking, it, it had kind of out, outlived its best before date because science has brought a new understanding of where the world came from, uh, you know, what happens after we're after we die, I believe it's the same thing that happened before we're born, nothingness. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Not existing didn't bother anyone before they existed. So why <laughs> in the world would it bother them after they're dead? Uh, so anyway, I, but, but I've now, I now see religion differently. I see it as a repository of wisdom. And I, as a scientist, as an atheist scientist, no longer just reject it wholesale. I think it's important to go back through it and, and scrutinize it, be aware of the limits of mankind's knowledge back then, um, and not hold it to fault for the factual inaccuracies, but to extract the wisdom from it and you know use that moving forward. Jack Lewis is a neuroscientist. He's the author of the book, The Science of Sin, Why We Do the Things We Know We Shouldn't. Jack, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you ain't gonna do me right, I might just do you in. Ain't it a sin? Ain't it a sin? Ah! If you're wondering whether sin is on the rise in today's society, it turns out that narcissism, which Lewis talked about in relationship to pride, does seem to be climbing, according to folks who measure narcissism. We've got more about that on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also got production help this week from Asil Kibbe. When I From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.